Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This episode of the Bowery Boys podcast is supported by True West. On Broadway, starring Oscar nominee Ethan Hawke and Golden Globe nominee Paul Dano. Opposites attack in Sam Shepard's explosive drama that gleefully detonates our misguided myths of family, identity, and the American dream. As two hot-blooded brothers face off over issues like order versus chaos and art versus commerce, they'll discover that they have more in common than they think. James McDonald directs this limited 11-week engagement at the American Airlines Theater in the heart of Times Square. True West, starring Ethan Hawke and Paul Dano. Tickets and more information at roundabouttheater.org. And before we begin the show, I just want to call attention to our latest live show, which is finally here on January 11th, 2019 at the Bell House. We'll be at the Bell House as part of the Brooklyn Podcast Festival, presented by Pandora. And in this show, we're going to explore the life of Walt Whitman. We'll be celebrating the writer's life in New York and Brooklyn because they were two separate cities when he sat down to pen his classic, Leaves of Grass. We've got some special guests and some special surprises lined up, so please join us. That's the Bowery Boys live at the Bell House, Gowanus, Brooklyn, on Friday, January 11th. Visit our website for more information or head over to cityfarmspresents.com slash events. The Bowery Boys episode 279 a new year in old New York, from Times Square to Chinatown. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young, returning to the scene of a very famous celebration. The biggest annual party in New York, of course, the New Year's Eve party in Times Square. Now, what you're about to listen to is an interesting mix of old and new material, which I hope you find fascinating because we don't do reruns on this show, you understand. So first, we'll be representing an episode that we released a few years ago on the history of Times Square's New Year's Eve celebration. This is really like the one day of the year, annually, that those who live outside of New York City focus all their attention onto just one particular area of Manhattan. And not only does it draw crowds of tens of thousands, of course, almost one billion people at some point watch the Times Square celebration on television. 
But this is not going to only be about Times Square, but about the New Year's traditions in New York before there was even a Times Square, from the church bells at Trinity Church to the drunken New Year's Day visitations of old New York. But that is not all, because if we're opening it wider, we of course cannot forget the Chinese New Year. So you'll be getting a bonus show here of new material after the Times Square stuff, because you can't tell that total story without looking at the Chinese New Year and the annual parade, which has wound itself down tiny Mott Street for almost 150 years, making it a longer-running tradition than even the Midtown Manhattan Party. So pop open the champagne as we raise a toast to a new year in old New York, from Times Square to Chinatown. Okay, Tom, the time has come. Where are we starting this show? Obviously, it's in Times Square, right? Well, we could start in Times Square, say on December 31st, 1904, for the first big celebration that took place in Times Square proper. But I don't want to, Greg. We can't start this story there because that's, that's starting way too late. For by 1904, New York had experienced centuries of celebrating New Year's. <laughs> right. So instead of starting at the beginning of time, though, where, where more exactly, more precisely in the story are we starting? Well, well let's start with the Dutch. Okay, so okay. We, let's just roll back very quickly to the 17th century. We have the Dutch. They bring over a New Year's tradition of really sort of mending ties um, and fresh starts, if you will. That's what New Year's really signified. And it still does to us today, right? I mean, if you think about New Year's, you think about what? Resolutions. Yes, and shaking the bad year off. The Dutch brought over a tradition of spending not New Year's Eve, but New Year's Day going around and visiting people who maybe they had slighted or maybe things had taken a bad turn over the course of the year. And they and they sought to kind of repair relations. So New Year's Day was actually like a way to mend fences, unlike today where it's mostly for hangovers. <laughs> Right, where you might be, like, propped over the fence. <laughs> no, this, they were celebrating New Year's Day. And, and actually, into the English period, there would be a new tradition of the New Year's visits. This was, again, something that took place on New Year's Day, where you'd go around and visit people. It was less, I think, to ask for forgiveness or to start things afresh. It was more of a society event to get around and to make calls on people. People went around town and visited people to sort of catch up. It was a nice way to drop in. No, I've read about this custom before. It's always kind of fascinated me because I, I don't I don't understand if everyone's going out to visit people, then who's actually staying in their house to receive them? 
That's a very good question. I think that mostly it was the men who were going out to visit and the ladies who were staying behind to receive the visitors. Oh, it had like refreshments and things, I'm sure, prepared. And drinks. And they had their hair done very, very early in the morning and would even sleep in place, I read, as to not upset their bouffants. But their gentlemen callers would arrive, the the young men who were out on the hunt, if you will, would would sort of take off from their homes at 10 a.m. on New Year's Day. Imagine any young men on the hunt in New York taking off at 10 a.m. on New Year's Day these days. It's sounds not going to so, happen. Sounds so respectable. Well, I think that it would quickly lose that uh, veneer of respectability for the whole point was to visit as many people as possible over the course of that day. They would even hand a list to their carriage drivers and say, here's the list. I need to go from this house to this house to this house. Why the carriage driver? Because he was having a drink with all of these ladies, or perhaps their mothers as well. So so it's kind of like Scavenger Hunt meets The Bachelor. <laughs> meets Downton Abbey. Okay, sure. And this would remain a tradition in the city through the early 20th century. So during the 19th century, gentlemen callers were going around on New Year's Day. I think that we need to resurrect this tradition. All right, we'll bring that back after we bring back Evacuation Day on November 25th. Okay, we'll have a list list of old-timey holidays that we will reinstate. That's a certainly fine traditional custom for New Year's Day, but they were having some kind of celebration the night before, right? Well, to be sure, people did, you know, often mark the event, but it could be in the presence of their own home. Don't forget that many people didn't have clocks uh, that were very reliable. So the easiest way to know that it was, in fact, midnight would be to listen to the bells of Trinity Church. So that was sort of a focal point, a gathering place for the masses along the streets around Wall Street and in front of Trinity Church on Broadway. People would go down and they would wait and they would sort of celebrate in the streets and they'd wait for the chimes and the bells to ring at midnight. So in a way, it was kind of like the Times Square celebration, just a lot more genteel. Well, not necessarily, because from the reports that I read, people would already show up drunk. They'd get drunker in the streets and its surrounding saloons and taverns. And before long, bricks would start flying in the air. Bricks? Brick, so, so, cobblestones, okay. you know, pavement stones. Rowdies. They were, the rowdies were coming out. Well, they were having a good time, and they were kind of bored, and they were waiting for the church bells. That was throughout much of the 19th century. Right. There were some more genteel, better-behaved events as well, including, very notably, on December 31st, 1897, when crowds gathered at City Hall Park to celebrate not just the new year, but what was about to happen at the stroke of midnight, that being the consolidation of the city of New York. Probably the most important beginning of a new year ever in New York for the consolidation of these different areas that would become the other boroughs. And so it would become the city of greater New York. And which ended up being, of course, the biggest party that they would have downtown, because that was 1898, correct? Right, 1897 into January 1st of 98, yes. But then just a few years later, of course, it would move all the way uptown to uh, 42nd Street. And it's funny because what would take us uptown would be the arrival uptown of a business that was also right there on City Hall Park for the New York Times would move up to Longacre Square, the intersection of Broadway and 7th Avenue and 42nd Street, which was really a center of the carriage industry up until that point. And we've talked about this in lots of other shows. The New York Times would decide to move all the way up to 42nd Street from Park Row 
following several different trends, following other newspapers that had left Newspaper Row there on Park Row, uh, like the New York Herald, which had moved up to 34th Street and had that intersection named for it, Herald Square. And the New York Times looked around and thought, well, yeah, it seems that the city is on the move. New development popping up in Midtown on the west side, on the Upper East and Upper West Side. It seems that the city's going farther north. And they, the Times, wanted to be right in the middle of all of it because they didn't just have the editorial offices. They also had the presses in the basement. And this was the direction that entertainment was going, and the, the Broadway stage was heading up that direction and all the cabarets. Right. And we've talked about that in the Birth of Broadway show, that at that point, at 1900, the theater district was really between Herald Square and today's Times Square. So it was creeping up Broadway. So it seemed like a natural fit for them. And they, they designed a building right there on that little wedge of land, this little triangle between 42nd and 43rd, a wedge made from the funny inner section of Broadway and 7th Avenue. There had been a nine-story hotel on the spot, uh, but they ripped it down and they built a 25-story, 430-foot-tall office building, gave it a very ornate facade. That was beautiful. I think that it looked a lot like the Flatiron Building with the lovely Beaux-Arts facade. And Well, it was Italian Renaissance, so it had the similarities to the Flatiron, certainly, and certainly not that far. It was on the same street. And it was also a wedge. I guess that's what made, mm-hmm. you know, you look at the photos and you say, well, that looks like the Flatiron. When the Times Building went up, it was the second largest in the city. So I guess by the effect of moving up there and being this big newspaper in an area that had not been completely overdeveloped with tall skyscrapers, I guess that was the reason they renamed it Times Square? The simple answer is yes. But there are a couple conflicting reports on that. But Adolf Ox, who was the publisher, had become the publisher in 1896, he had asked Mayor George McClellan to rename the, the square after the paper. However, according to the official report in the New York Times... They make it sound like the city renamed this Long Acre Square Times Square because of the subway opening, because of the station that was effectively in the building's basement. That if they continued to just call it 42nd Street, that would be confusing because that first line of the subway um, went up to Grand Central, which was 42nd Street, and then made its way across 42nd to Long Acre Square. So... The Times made it sound like it was actually August Belmont uh, who owned the Interborough Rapid Transit Company. Who named it. Who named it right after the paper. And the building would be completed in 1904, and they decided to throw a big party for the completion of the building and for the relocation of the newspaper to this square that had just been renamed for the newspaper. So they had a lot to celebrate. But they were around a lot of restaurants and hotels that were developing around the area, so it made sense to have a party here. Oh, yeah, and the theaters. People were just packing already into the stretch of Broadway. And the proof is that 200,000 people would come on that December 31st. They had live music, bands playing in the streets, and just at midnight, fireworks shot off from the base of the buildings. Fireworks. Imagine seeing fireworks over a city that didn't have a lot of skyscrapers, so you could actually see the fireworks, right? Oh, it sounds magnificent, but imagine having 200,000 people actually crammed into Times Square and fireworks exploding all over the place. Mm -hmm. It was... It was actually a little bit chaotic. And in fact, they rained ash down on the thousands of people beneath them. So one of many reasons why we don't do that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't the cleanest way to ring in the new year. 
But the next day's paper, January 1st, 1905, would be the first edition that would actually be published in that new building. So they oh, really wow. did a wonderful, marvelous job of logisticating on this, if you Kick, will. <laughs> kicking the whole thing off. I didn't know it was the very next day. So those are fireworks, but of course, we know the celebration better for this gigantic orb, the ball that drops. Right. Well, that wouldn't come for a couple of years. They would continue, you know, with the, the fireworks, but it was quickly deemed, unsurprisingly, to be too dangerous. And they had to come up with another way to signify the moment of midnight, you know, because the fireworks were effectively doing that. <laughs> right. They were telling people, sure. this is the moment when these like <laughs> blasts are going off. So they had to come up with another way to do that. And Ox, the New York Times publisher, took inspiration from a tradition that had been developed by, by ships. It was a maritime tradition of lowering a ball at noon to tell other seafaring captains that it was, in fact, noon to allow them to set their watches because they were being guided, right, by the sun. That would later be replaced by self-winding watches. More fashionable, right, certainly. But, but less fun. I mean, there's drama in a ball drop. <laughs> and, and it became a thing in cities, you know, an official ball drop. It kept everybody in town on the same time. And in 1877, the Western Union office in New York at Broadway and Day actually had a ball drop of their own installed. So Adolph Ox, the, the publisher of the Times, looks to the ball drop and to the recent installation of electricity in New York and kind of combines the two of those together with this idea to drop an electrified ball on top of his building. Which, of course, being the second tallest building, would be seen for miles around. And, and could be seen by hundreds of thousands of people in the streets around it. So he had this massive 700 pound ball, this illuminated globe built of wood and iron. Um, it was designed by Strauss Signs and equipped with 125 watt bulbs. So on December 31st, 1907, this team lowered Strauss's glowing globe down the pole, which was actually the old main mast of the battleship USS New Mexico. It had to be specially hauled up there for this very occasion, <laughs> lowered it down, signaling in 1908. 1908 kicks off the Times Square tradition that we know today, which is people gathering to look at this ball as it rings in the new year. Now, interestingly, this celebration would, of course, be started by the New York Times, would be centered around the New York Times building, and would be in a plaza named for the New York Times. However, they would soon actually fade from this picture. For in 1913, those offices just weren't adequate enough for this growing paper. So they just moved a very short distance to 229 West 43rd Street. Right, because I guess the New York Times can't leave Times Square. No. Well, except that it would 100 <laughs> years later, but it couldn't at the time. Not at that time. They would stay there until 2007. Now, these parties, they were annual, of course, and they started getting larger and a little bit rowdier. The first one was mostly men in tuxes, but as these parties progress, as a party would do, as the reputation precedes itself, they get a little rowdier. There was an immoral aspect to this that certain social activists, namely the grand old icon Jacob Reese, 
was definitely against. He thought this was promoting bad morals and bad sanitary conditions. Well, I don't even want to think of what the bathroom situation was oh. at this point. <laughs> in, 19, but... <laughs> in the 1910s. Well, Jacob would promote so-called sane festivals, which would be his... Some of them were down in Union Square. The ones that I read were focused around there. They would be, of course, sober functions featuring choral groups singing patriotic songs because who doesn't find that a party atmosphere, right? <laughs> so, well, but hold on. I mean, in all fairness, there's a transition in the 20th century as it becomes a celebration in public the night before, right? Mm -hmm. New Year's Day. And it's no longer about like thoughtful relationship building activities on, <laughs> on New Year's Day right. That's true. itself. Well, the problem with his sane festivals is, of course, after midnight, these crowds would actually just spread out throughout the city and would intermingle with the Union Square Sober Festival. And it would no longer be so sober, let's It'd just say. infiltrated. Yes. Now, by the 1920s, Times Square, of course, was lit up with all these electronic signs, right? I mean, Times Square is becoming a little bit the neighborhood that we're familiar with as this uh, entertainment district. The streets were buzzing with dozens of shows and restaurants. But wait, 1920s, that's also prohibition, right? Uh, yes, ironically enough. Now that Times Square seems ready for a party like this and... Banning alcohol, of course, tempered the celebration severely. Well, there were definitely dozens of speakeasies in the surrounding blocks. You know, the party still raged on in there, of course, a little bit more quietly. Of course, though, when Prohibition is repealed on December 6, 1933, alcohol comes roaring back into the equation here. So that New Year's Eve was the biggest celebration since the early 1910s with approximately, I've read a wide range of numbers between 400,000 to 750,000 people to ring in the year 1933. Well, that certainly sounds like a party, but it also sounds potentially dangerous. Yeah, the, the newspapers actually made note that only a few people were sent to Bellevue Hospital for alcohol poisoning, and only a couple had died. Well, that's depressing, and it's the Depression. <laughs> it is the Depression. In the 1930s, you have a lot to drink about. Many people are happy to celebrate the end of the years as they go through the 1930s. And the hope of something better coming. Right. But in a way, the 1930s is also the golden age of the New Year's Eve celebration, thanks to the radio. Radio broadcasts, which had debuted in the 1920s, revolutionized this holiday because all of a sudden Americans could count down together with a group of strangers, right? So it wasn't just you in a room looking at one object. You could actually listen as other people in all sorts of different places as they celebrated the very same thing at the same time, if you were in wow. the same time zone, that is. Right. Now, one of the most popular individuals, thanks to radio and thanks to New Year's Eve, was the band leader from Canada, Guy Lombardo, one of the best-known radio personalities. And he would have live New Year's Eve broadcasts at the Roosevelt Hotel that started in 1928. The, that hotel is at 45th and Madison. He would be associated with New Year's Eve through his entire career until he died in the 1970s. And he'd move hotels, though. Yeah, he would later go on to the Waldorf Astoria, for instance. Um, he would even move on to television in the 1950s. I mean, he was the... He was still broadcasting from the Waldorf. 
the celebration really expanded in the 1930s in some unusual ways. For instance, women began appearing in larger numbers. Before this time, it was considered a man's holiday. You can imagine mm. that, you know, in the, especially in the 1910s, to have like groups of men standing around, possibly imbibed. It wasn't the right place for a woman of that time. But in the 1930s, women are feeling a lot more comfortable. They're going out in groups. And so they're now participating in this alongside men. So you have more people showing up for this thing, but what are they watching? Today, when we watch it, we see concerts, we see music, there, there are different things happening. There's Ryan Seacrest. Yeah. What were they watching? Well, that's interesting. They kind of weren't watching anything. and the, Watching they, their wallets. Yeah, exactly. But there was no central performance like there is today, or there wasn't a reason to get there much earlier than an hour before midnight. In fact... Sometimes, like on December thirty first, like it would be ten o'clock, and they would still be would still be sort of sparsely attended, or mm. sparsely filled. It would only start collecting after eleven p.m. because these people were actually partying in the local hotels and restaurants. Oh, so they'd spill out of their dinner and their dancing yeah. and into the streets of Times Square. I mean, the hotel scene is much bigger back in the nineteen thirties than it is today. I mean, there are hotels in Times Square, obviously, but it's a more tourist focused right. industry. Where back then you went to these hotels as your night out. So you kind of like retreated back to the hotel after midnight. And this all sounds fun and gay, but I imagine that it must have been affected in the 1940s with World War II. I would imagine there just weren't as many men around as well to celebrate. That also, although a lot of times these parties would have a lot of servicemen there, like oh, during sure, the war, during, during the war years. But it is true that the celebrations took on a much more tempered feel, a much more sobered feel, of course. In fact, in 1941, the, in the weeks after Pearl Harbor, the city almost canceled the Times Square festivities. And, you know, there was a lot of fear and paranoia that was going on at, at the time. I mean, we can all relate to this, I think, in modern terms. To quote a letter from the New York Times in December 22nd, 1941, quote, one can imagine the havoc that would result from a bomb dropped by a plane in Times Square during a New Year's Eve celebration. The possibility of a token raid on New York is not remote, as the Germans could send over a few planes loaded with light bombs which could be dropped, and the pilots descend at nearby fields as prisoners of war." Unquote. So there were even plans for air raids in the surrounding hotels and hundreds of additional police and firemen in st stationed in hotels around the area. Did, did people still show up? Were there still crowds during these wartime years? Believe it or not, there were still crowds, even though by the following year, they would impose a blackout. And the same would happen for ringing in the next year of 1944. But there would be large crowds there still. I mean, there were still people who wanted to celebrate, who wanted to sort of like let the fears of the day aside for at least an evening. And I suppose the celebration had, by that point, also taken on kind of a patriotic air unto itself. It was becoming a symbolically American celebration as well. It is. That is true. Although I did read one report ominously that described the 1943 celebration as being, quote, zombie-like. So it was certainly affected by the war, but at the war's end, of course, on August 14th, 1945, well, that was perhaps the most famous gathering of all mm. ever in Times Square, was, of course, the ending of the war. And that New Year's Eve, of course, was a riotous, celebratory affair. 
But post-war, of course, and into the 1950s, the U.S. would be blessed with that great glowing little box in the corners of many homes. Yeah, and believe it or not, the television, of course, would transform the event even more. And television broadcasters would be there almost from the very invention of the box itself. The very first New Year's Eve that was covered on television was December 31st, 1949 by NBC, which aired a very short program, 11.45 p.m. to 5 after 12. And it was... <laughs> a 20-minute <laughs> yeah. New Year's Eve special? Oh, it gets better. It was... Because I don't know if you would want to see this. The host for more than 20 minutes, it was ventriloquist Paul Winchell <laughs> and his wooden co-star Jerry Mahoney. Now, Tom, you might know Paul Winchell, for he would later in the 1980s be the voice of Gargamel on the Smurfs TV show. Really? Yes. Um, wait, don't throw me off with the Smurfs, Greg. <laughs> he was he was hosting New Year's Eve with a, with a dummy, with yeah, a wooden dummy, with Jerry. Yeah, I mean, and they would it would be broadcast on television. So was the dummy doing the countdown? I, I can I can only imagine that was the reason the dummy was there. Okay, we need to talk to somebody <laughs> at NBC about. I this. would like to see this footage. It's true, but by the throughout the 1950s, of course, there would be a lot of television shows. It would be a, a very popular thing that would be broadcast into American homes. How exciting to see New York City at this period. And of course, there would still be radio shows as well. And CBS's New Year's Eve dancing party throughout the 1950s would feature Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong in hotels around New York, and of course, broadcast from other cities as well. And of course, Guy Lombardo as well. Guy was still on, still going strong. Because he would be referred to as sort of, you know, what Santa Claus is to Christmas Eve, Guy Lombardo was to New Year's Eve. Now, of course, some years it would be very severe weather. And so one of the kind of remarkable things about this event is that people show up anyway, right? right. Even through terrible weather. And so they like, think they're going to get a better spot. Yeah. And, I mean, they do by like a foot of snow sometimes. Uh, on New Year's Day of 1953, they were greeted with wet snowstorm. But there were still 200,000 people that showed up, wow. you know, down from a million, but still a lot of people. But of course, the custodians of Times Square during New Year's Eve would have greater issues at hand as New York would enter the 1960s and the 1970s and would gradually become a much more different place, a more dangerous and grittier place. So just what happens when you throw the biggest party in America in one of the seediest places in New York? We'll let you know how that turned out after the commercial break. This episode of the Bowery Boys is brought to you by Greats. Greats is Brooklyn's first sneaker company, and they mean the Greats. I would actually describe their shoe repertoire as being classic styles, classic designs, made the best for less. The kind of shoe that looks like one of those really expensive shoes, except for not having one of those like squiggly logos on the side of it. They have a really cool mix of styles. I got two pairs, actually. One's like a boat shoe that I slip on when I go out for errands. And then other ones nicer, dressier. I think the style's called the Hirsch. But another one you could actually check out when you go to their website, greats.com. One of their best sellers is the classic all-leather Royale lace-up in white, which is like the ultimate strutting around the city shoe. Now, there are fall styles just released for men and women, so go check them out. Save 15% off your first purchase at greats.com with our offer code BOWERY, 
B-O-W-E-R-Y. And we'd like to thank Greats for sponsoring the Bowery Boys. It weighs 200 pounds. It's got 158 lights. It had burned for 6,000 years, that ball. But in just a few short seconds, it will denote 1977 in 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, Happy 1977! Well, Greg, we're in the 1960s now at Times Square, New Year's. And by 1961, one Times Square, that building that had been the Times office building Mm -hmm. before they had moved, that was no longer controlled by the New York Times. It was now owned by Douglas Lee, who was a developer who was responsible for uh, many of the most iconic billboards, neon billboards, animated billboards at Times Square, including the camel billboard, you know, that blew the smoke rings out of it. Well, he controlled this building and he decided to give it a new look, to redevelop it for the Allied Chemical Company. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, which essentially meant ripping out all of that beautiful trim and all the The facade. The facade, essentially. He did more than give it a facelift. He just like took off the face. (laughs) He he ripped it off down to its uh, steel skeleton and then applied a, a white marble facade over the top of it. So it transformed it into this sort of modernist, kind of futuristic building that is still there today. Yeah, it's basically a mannequin. I mean, everyone's looking at it. It's wearing all of these signs, but it's essentially pretty much an empty building. But he kept the party at the top of the building because, of course, by this point, there were hundreds of thousands of people coming, right, to celebrate. He kept the party going and going into the 1970s. Now, in 1972, something interesting happened because a a group of TV producers got together and they said, look, the big show that people are watching from home is Guy Lombardo and his show being broadcast live from the ballroom at the Waldorf Astoria, which is really nice and everything. But that is an aging audience who's watching that. And it's 1972. It's kind of hard to watch people dancing cheek to cheek and draw like huge ratings, right? So Dick Clark, who had been in the TV show American Bandstand since 1956, he starred in and helped produce a New Year's Eve special that took place both at Times Square and also with pre-recorded music that had been taped out in California, in Long Beach, California. But Clark was in Times Square recording interviews with merrymakers in the streets. This special was called Three Dog Nights New Year's Rockin' Eve. Joy to the world. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremiah was a bullfrog. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> yes. Anyway, yes. That three dog night, they were the headline act on December 31st, 1972, with Dick Clark in Times Square talking to people. The next year, it was George Carlin uh, who was hosting in California, and Dick Clark still in New York. And the next year, 1974, would be Clark's first year hosting really the entire event from Times Square. So this really kicked off Times Square as an actual setting for a TV show. I mean, it, I guess the others had been hosting around it from hotels, right? And and even cutting to Times Square for part of the celebration. But it was Dick Clark who on ABC was really selling the Times Square celebration as 
has central celebrations for Americans to tune into, not just a city, but mm-hmm. an entire country to watch. So the, the country had really two big choices. They could watch Guy Lombardo until 1977 when he would pass away or Dick Clark with these younger, poppier celebrations over on ABC. And after Lombardo died, they did one last show, but it was clear that that era had run its course, and Dick Clark took over as the prominent entertainment for the nation on New Year's Eve. So this was the sort of prime activity in in terms of Times Square in the 1960s and 1970s. Is that right? Well, I think that that's a bit of an overstatement because people were also celebrating in other ways. A lot of people headed out to celebrate, obviously, just like today. I mean, think about how we celebrate New Year's Eve if we're here in the city. We don't necessarily go to Times Square. We certainly watch it at the stroke of midnight, but a lot of times there are parties and things. In the 60s and in the 70s, people had other ways to celebrate as well, of course. First of all, um, and I'm embarrassed that we didn't mention this earlier, some people went to church on New Year's Mm -hmm. Eve. Churches all over town had New Year's Eve services, St. Patrick's, Trinity, Fifth Avenue Presbyterian. Or, of course, there was still that sort of old-time ballroom dancing that was still going on at the Waldorf Astoria, right? The, well, the Waldorf. Hotels, right? right, and you could anybody could buy tickets for that. Like the Waldorf in 1968, you could get tickets for $45 to $55 per person. That included dinner, champagne, and dancing. You paid more to be closer to Guy Lombardo. Meanwhile, the Plaza, the same year, they had tickets for $50, so it was slightly cheaper. But meanwhile, the Rainbow Room at the top of Rockefeller Center, they were not charging anything premium. They didn't have a special New Year's Eve menu. They suggested in their statement to the New York Times that the view didn't change on New Year's, and so neither should their menu. (laughs) Well, that's maybe where I would have gone in my wide lapeled tuxedo. In In 1968. (laughs) I think actually you might have headed over to Roseland, Greg. Mm, Yeah. Which that same year, 1968, was offering $6 admission uh, to go inside and dance with other young things in celebration of the 50th anniversary of Roseland. But this is all ballroom dancing. Let's now move on to maybe disco dancing, or rather the trendier things that were happening with Dick Clark over in Times Square, where things perhaps were not swinging in other regards, I guess. Right, because, okay, that first year with Dick Clark and the big TV celebration with Three Dog Night was 1972. It sounds all, you know, fun and games. It sounds like everybody wanted to be there. But... Times Square in the 1970s had some issues, you know? Just take the fact that police estimated that in 1952, 1952, Greg, during the golden age after World War II, one million people were estimated to have attended Times Square for New Year's. 25 years later, 1977, there were only an estimated 50,000 who showed up. Probably one of the smallest attended Right. sounds like, right? 950,000 people less than, th- than 1952. Where were these 950,000 people? Why had they decided to not show up at Times Square? It's not so straightforward. It's a collection of things. There were crime issues, some quality of life issues, making people more hesitant, pickpockets, prostitutes. But also, I think, you know, kind of like a change in how people were even thinking about Times Square as the center point of the city. It got so bad that the owner of one Times Square, he protested by turning off the new zipper and like turning off all the lights on the building. The article says, quote, 
the moving light news sign at one Times Square after it was turned off yesterday to protest crime and pornography in the area. Alex Parker, owner of the building, said that the sign would remain dark and the dropping of the New Year's Eve ball would be ended unless he gets 100,000 signatures on a petition demanding that the area be cleaned up. The sign and dropping of the ball cost Mr. Parker $300,000 a year, he said. Quote, and I'm not going to spend another penny to entertain pimps, prostitutes, and criminals. But nothing of Dick Clark. No, well, meanwhile, Dick Clark is there, right? But mm-hmm. that's this is the other side of the story. In 1978, with Dick Clark, you know, hosting the event in Times Square, there were many, many robberies and assaults that were reported by the police. And there had been only 500 police stationed in Times Square that year. So the next year, in 1979, the police department nearly doubled their force to 900 placed on duty at Times Square alone. And would almost keep to that number and, of course, even increase as the years progress here. In 1976, the city famously almost went bankrupt, and they were forced to cut back on non-essential programming and expenses, including in 1976 when the city slashed the budget on another option that one had on New Year's Eve, which was to celebrate in Central Park. Did you know that there was a Central Park event. Uh, Yeah, it went on for about 10 years from the late 60s into the late 70s. Yeah, I don't think I would have wanted to celebrate in Central Park in the late 70s. Oh, Greg, but wait, (laughs) can you imagine? In 1976, you could have gathered with nearly 10,000 New Yorkers to celebrate with fireworks, juggling, performance art, and dancing, starting, in fact, at Rockefeller Center at 1030 at night with a parade led by two conceptual artists, one representing the angel of the Bethesda fountain and the other representing the changing year as they walked (laughs) up 6th Avenue to Central Park. And just in case things got dark when you got inside the park, there were 10 people who were dressed as, quote, large white hands wandering through the crowd with flares. (laughs) And once they got there, there was a funky version of Old Lang Syne. I'm surprised that hipsters haven't brought that back yet as a tradition. (laughs) It sounds amazing, right? So they're like dressed like Hamburger Helper, like gigantic hands, white hands. Yes, Hamburger Helper, walking up 6th Avenue into Central Park at midnight. Well, help you make a great party. Well, the New York Rock and Eve that's going on here, like mm-hmm. during the, it's becoming a little bizarre because things are getting a little tense, not only in Times Square, but in the world. And of course, it's festooned with pop culture figures on the show, correct? Who are like hosting and bringing in the new year. Like for instance, on December 31st, 1980, bringing in 1981, the Dukes of Hazzard's Catherine Bach, Daisy Duke, was a host of one of these uh, New Year's Eve celebrations. Which year? December 31st, 1980. Well, two minutes before midnight, the entire crowd observed a moment of silence for the 55 hostages that were held at the American embassy in Tehran by the supporters of the Ayatollah Khomeini in the, during the Iranian revolution, right? So this is the Wait, world. there was a moment of silence and then they cut back to Daisy Duke? Yes. So the show's a little awkward, right? Especially here in the late 70s, early 80s. Adding a bit more sort of absurdity to the whole thing in 1982, that ball drop, the ball was actually transformed into a gigantic apple. 
Oh, right. So During the, the I Heart New York campaign. Yeah, that camp, get campaign which started in 1977 was incorporated here finally when they turned the ball for several years, for much of the 80s, into a gigantic apple with right. red lights and a green stem. Well, as we've discussed before, in the early 1990s, the cleanup of Times Square begins in earnest with these initiatives by the mayors David Dinkins and Rudy Giuliani. There had been fairly low attendance to these New Year's Eve celebrations. People started to come back starting in the 1990s. As a result, as, it, as the reputation of Times Square improved, as it seemed like a, a more family-friendly place mm -hmm. in many ways, the TV networks who had been maybe relegated to hotels and to buildings around Times Square and were reporting like correspondents into Times Square were now actually decided to actually base the event in Times Square itself. Like so it made, fewer cutaways and more just the, the, the just show is yes. there. I mean, most notably, obviously, is when ABC actually moved to Times Square in 1999. And ABC was the producer of Dick Clark's Rock and Eve. Uh -huh. so, so they were finally in Times Square. Well, then notably, Y2K... Tom, yes. so with the with the arrival of the year 2000, when we all were afraid that our computers were going to stop working, remember all that? Um, the ball was again replaced with one covered in Waterford crystals and 600 halogen bulbs and 504 triangle-shaped crystal panels. So some serious bling was being dangled in front of the crowd here. It was the largest crystal ball in the world. That I remember. <laughs> And now the streets were being filled for hours before the event. You know how I said earlier, like people would just kind of show up at 11. Right. Now the whole plaza would be closed off for many hours beforehand. Well, starting in 1979, they'd actually introduced more aggressive barriers to the streets to really direct the flow of pedestrians in the plaza to make it you know, to make it safer and easier for the police to govern, but it certainly makes it more difficult for the pedestrians who are attending. It certainly makes it, yeah, very difficult to get out because there's only very specific spots to leave. As anybody listening who's attended knows, it can be very difficult to get in or out. Now, on December 31st, 2001, the celebration was more of a, obviously, a patriotic gathering due to the events just a few months before on September 11th, 2001, with the attack on the World Trade Center. The ball itself literally reflected that, for the ball was now covered, at least 195 of the 504 crystals were engraved by artisans with the names of the countries and regions of the world that had lost people in the attacks and other memorials to the to September 11th. And Tom, the incredible thing that 2001, there were 7,000 police officers wow. in the Times Square area, or probably at least in that area of Midtown. You know, and to this day, since 2001, the security has been very, very high for this particular event. So that crystal ball, the world's largest crystal ball that was coming down, but is that the same ball uh, that drops today? No. So there was another ball, and then they got rid of that ball. <laughs> lots of balls. Lots of New Year's balls. Galas. Literally lots of balls in the air. But in 2009, <laughs> the largest was introduced, which is a sphere lit by over 32,000 LED lamps. And it contains 2,688 Waterford crystal panels. 
It weighs almost 12,000 pounds. And the most important thing about this one is it's weatherproof. So since 2009, they just leave the ball on top of the building. So when you go there today... You can see it. You can actually see it. They don't take it down. It's right. not It's not a seasonal decoration. It's something that's up year-round. And it's lit year-round, too. And because it's LED, they can do all kinds of fun things. They can put all kinds of colors representing different events. It's become multifunctional. Like everything else about Times Square, the New Year's Eve celebration is completely unrecognizable if you were had been there for some reason at the beginning, at the very first one. In 1904. Right. The, with, between the mass security and the one million people to all these outdoor performances and, of course, this multimedia worldwide show beamed all over the world. One final note, it would be disrespectful if I didn't mention the Department of Sanitation, who every year goes down there and cleans up hundreds of tons of confetti and all the detritus of thousands of people. In fact, last year it was 178 workers who used 26 mechanical brooms, 25 trucks, 38 leaf blowers to clean five tons of trash. So thank you to the Department of Sanitation for helping us Clean the slate of that old, (laughs) nasty year and ring in the new year. So that was our history on the New Year's Eve celebration in Times Square. That was from a show that was specifically about, you know, Times Square and the effect that party has had on New York and on New Yorkers. But now that we have that piece of the puzzle, I want to contrast it with the story of New York City's other great New Year's celebration, the Chinese New Year or Spring Festival, which has been publicly celebrated in the area of Manhattan's Chinatown for a longer period of time than the Times Square celebration. It's been there for far longer than there's actually been a place called Times Square. The Chinese New Year is a lunar festival that lands on the Gregorian calendar on a different series of dates each year, usually between late January and the month of February. So this year, 2019, the Chinese New Year kicks off on February 5th with the Chinese New Year parade on Sunday, February 17th. We'll be entering the Year of the Pig. Now, this is traditionally a 15-day festival celebrated the world over with traditions that have been passed down in some cases for thousands of years. But most New Yorkers will usually know the festival due to one or two main events. Either those celebrations in Flushing, Queens or Sunset Park, Brooklyn, or the one that begins on Mott Street in Manhattan in the heart of New York's oldest Chinatown and where the story of Asian Americans in New York City really begins. Significant numbers of Chinese laborers first arrived to North America in the 1840s, first to mine gold in the California Gold Rush, then to work on constructing sections of the Transcontinental Railroad. Now here in New York, there had been Chinese sailors and businessmen that had first appeared as part of trade activities between the merchants of South Street here in New York and the Chinese Port of Trade in Canton. 
but New York's first permanent Chinese residents came mostly from this movement from out west. Chinese men leaving jobs out in the West to find better ones here in New York and to escape the West due to persecution. Now, for more information on the origins of Chinatown, we do have an entire podcast on that subject, number 129, for more details. By the early 1860s, a small enclave of Chinese people would settle around the area of Mott Street in Lower Manhattan, slightly east of the notorious Five Points Slum. As Five Points' dynamics would change over the decades from Irish immigrants to mostly Italian immigrants by the 1890s, the Chinese community here would develop a very strong foothold as their neighbors on these side streets of Mott, Baxter, Pell, and a few others. And it would be here, in the nucleus of modern New York Chinatown, that the first Chinese New Year celebration would be held. By the 1870s, uptown New Yorkers, mostly of European lineage, were uniquely fascinated by Chinatown in two ways. They were either drawn to its exotic, colorful aspects or repelled by its non-Christian influences. Nothing sums that up better than this headline from the New York Times on February 16, 1874. Quote, the Chinese New Year, idolatry on Baxter Street, feasting and smoking opium, unquote. Over 100 men were celebrating the New Year in a, quote, heathen temple on 12 Baxter Street in a building that would serve as an early community center for this budding community. Oh, but the Times assures its readers here in 1874, quote, It must not be understood that the Chinese are so attached to their idols as not to be influenced by the truths of Christianity. In fact, many organizations such as the Five Points Mission and the Young Men's Christian Association, a.k.a. the YMCA, were deliberately reaching into Chinatown during the Chinese New Year to assist men with English studies and, if possible, to lure some of them away from their, quote, idolatry. In general, early Chinese New Year celebrations in New York were uncharacteristically sedate due to fears of harassment and discrimination by their neighbors and by the police. But as the Chinese population grew, as deeper connections are made, for instance, with law enforcement, these New Year celebrations become a bit more flamboyant. From the New York Tribune in 1882, quote, The ordinary street signs were adorned with red flannel streamers, while new placards in crimson and gilt announced the special attractions of the holiday trade. A spirit of wild extravagance seemed to possess every queue-wearer. Just a few months later that year, in 1882, the Chinese Exclusion Act was signed into law, prohibiting Chinese immigration into the United States the Chinese Exclusion Act would also hamper men from bringing their families over to New York City. And as a result, it became known as a, quote, bachelor society of mostly Chinese men. By the 1880s, there was also full-fledged white tourism going on in Chinatown. Uptowners dazzled and intrigued by the delicious food and exotic customs of the Chinese. The newspapers focused less on the religious observances still taking place in the halls, homes, and temples, and focused more on the supposed wild debauchery, the opium dens, the drinking, the gang activity. As a result, the Chinese New Year, with its noisy street celebrations and festive decorations, drew thousands of non-Chinese to the area at night. 
That is, if they could get a handle on when the lunar celebration actually was. From the New York Times, February 2nd, 1891. Quote, Misled by the fantastic yarns which were spun in some of the Sunday morning newspapers, hundreds of curious white men made pilgrimages to Mott Street yesterday, confidently expecting to find the celebration of Chinese New Year's Day going on. Delegations of mostly young men eager to learn from the Chinese a new way of raising cane, but every one of the pilgrims learned in two minutes after his arrival that he had made his visit about a week ahead of time. Now, it wasn't just music and inebriance which gave the Chinese New Year its reputation. It was also, of course, the fireworks. What is a Chinese New Year celebration without fireworks? One newspaper in 1892 describes a parade on on Pell, Doyers, and Mott Streets, accompanied, quote, by the fuss and fizz of firecrackers and Chinese music. There were virtually no regulations on fireworks in the mid to late 19th century, and you could procure them from almost any store in the neighborhood. There was even a so-called fireworks district that was even just a short distance from Chinatown, just a little east of City Hall. But by the start of the 20th century, you would begin to see fireworks and eventually firecrackers sometimes prohibited from these New Year celebrations. Even while racist immigration laws would remain in place, Chinatown would slowly grow out of being a so-called bachelor society, with significant numbers of Chinese women and children now participating in New Year's festivities, still centered here on Mott Street, at such lavish restaurants like the Port Arthur at 79 Mott Street, or the Chinese Tuxedo at 2 Doyer Street. By the 1930s, depictions of the Chinatown celebration became almost reverential. With photography, people could now see the festivities for the first time, the wonderful costumes, the parade's central dragon dance. Reports even became less critical of the religious aspect and became more admiring of such customs as the paying off of yearly debts before the new year. During World War II, the Chinese New Year Parade even took on a national patriotic bent. China was at war with Japan and would soon become America's ally in World War II. In 1939, here at the New York Parade, the traditional dragon was replaced by a Chinese war ambulance. According to the Daily News, a few years later, in 1943, quote, American flags were mingled with those of the Chinese Republic, and American soldiers of Chinese descent marched with Chinatown members of the United States War Organizations. Later that year, the Chinese Exclusion Act would be repealed, even as this country would focus other racist policies at other groups of U.S. citizens, namely Japanese Americans. The parades began drawing thousands of onlookers by the 1950s, enamored by these images of the lions and dragons, the live music, the festive costumes, and the allure of what had now become one of New York's most favorite cuisines. Chinese New York was changing by the 1960s, with new immigration laws inspiring waves of immigration. In the 1970s, many non-Cantonese Chinese immigrants preferred to develop outside the Cantonese-dominant Chinatown of Manhattan, giving birth to new Chinese enclaves in Queens and Brooklyn. Meanwhile, around the late 1980s, immigrants from Fuzhou, 
speaking Mandarin, would develop just east of Old Chinatown in a neighborhood that is sometimes called Little Fuzhou today. For those non-fluent in Chinese, it would appear that Chinatown as a whole had expanded its original confines on Mott Street, although in reality, today's Chinatown area reflects a multitude of different cultures, languages, and customs. The modern era provides quite a contrast to the Chinese New Year's of the 19th century. Today, New York mayors regularly appear at Chinese New Year celebrations, and events are not even necessarily relegated to Chinese neighborhoods. One mayor who was perhaps not greeted so kindly with traditional embraces was Rudy Giuliani, who banned fireworks completely from Chinese New Year celebrations in 1997. Many in the community were understandably disturbed by this ban, given the symbolic power of fireworks to drive away evil spirits. In 1999, there were even mock fireworks filled with red confetti fired off during the parade to generally poor reviews. The following year in 2000, to combat declining attendance, organizers essentially reconceived the parade as a, quote, American-style parade, including a grand marshal and school marching bands. Today, New York public schools get one day off for the Lunar New Year, and the fireworks have returned to New York's Chinese New Year celebration. Mayor Bloomberg lifted the ban in 2004, although personal fireworks are still prohibited. Now, on our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, I'll have more information on all things New Year. Pictures from Times Square, pictures from Trinity Church, and of course, several from the Chinatown Celebration. In addition, please follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and on Instagram, where in the next few days, I'll be running through Chinatown, taking some pictures of some of the sites that I mentioned in this show. Now, if you're in the mood for a good walking tour, and I know that you are, Check out this January's offerings uh, from the Bowery Boys Walks, the Bowery Boys official walking tour company, including the tours Gilded Age Shopping, Ladies Mile, and Cast Iron Architecture, Glamour, Greed, Money, and Murder, the world of 19th century NoHo, and Legends and Landmarks of Broadway. You can find out more information about those tours and on what days you can go on those tours in January and February by visiting the website BoweryBoysWalks.com. So on behalf of Tom, I want to wish you all a happy new year. We will see you in two weeks in 2019. So have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.